Amen. Okay, well, good morning. If you would, I'd encourage you to take out your Bible and type to or turn to Genesis 4. And then if you would, put your finger also on Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 4 and Genesis 14. If you've been with us for a little while, you might be thinking, wait a second, that doesn't sound right. Because we've been in the Gospel of John for the past three months, and you promised that we would be in the Gospel of John for six months. So what are we doing in Genesis today? Good question. So today, we're actually taking a quick hiatus. Uh, We're doing a special one-off message in Bible study class today to supplement our special one-off Sunday each year that we have in the life and the ministry of our church, and that is namely Pledge Sunday. Pledge Sunday. So if you're new, if you don't know what Pledge Sunday is, uh, it's a special Sunday each year where as a church family, we have a pronounced focus on stewardship, generosity, and money and possessions. And so now, you know, today we talk about money. We're going to be talking about money in a, a pronounced theological sense, okay, which is not that uncommon. The Bible is full of uh, references to possessions and our treasure and money and stewardship. But today we're also going to be talking about, not just here, but also in the worship service, we're going to have a pronounced focus on a local church sense when it comes to money. And that is uncommon. It only happens once a year, at least once in worship, once in Bible study, where we answer big questions such as, where are we as a church financially? And what's our budget? And how are we using those gifts that are freely offered to further the ministry of this church and fulfill the Great Commission? How are we impacting Houston, Texas and the United States and the world? How are we involved in church planning? How are we involved in missions? The North American Mission Board, the International Mission Board, the Southern Baptist Convention. What about the new children's building we're building right across the, the, uh, the archway over there? Are we launching a new campus anytime soon? What are, the, what are the plans for the future? All big questions, relevant questions that our people need to know. And so we have one Sunday a year that we have specifically marked off for those for answering those types of questions. But traditionally, Pledge Sunday really has three main purposes in mind. Three, if you want to write this down just for future reference. One is that it's a way for our church to gauge where we're at financially, okay? So how we can forecast for years to come and for right now, for this year, and also how we can creatively and effectively fulfill the Great Commission here in Houston. Secondly, another purpose that we have for Pledge Sunday is that we want to be, quite frankly, just transparent with people communicatively. We want people to know the budget. We want people to know where our tithes and offerings are going to. There's no hidden agenda. We provide our budget and expenses in a nice little pamphlet you'll receive later today just how much we budget for salaries and facilities and AC and missions and partnerships around town with nonprofits, all those things. And then thirdly, another reason why we talk about, uh, or why we have Pledge Sunday and why we talk about it so much is that we care what the Bible talks about and what God's will is when it comes theologically to money. You know, breaking news, God talks about money. Jesus talks about money. We talk about money. Now, trust me, before we move any further, I just want to address the obvious elephant in the room, right? Okay, I know that usually when you might hear the words Pledge Sunday, especially if you've been around here for a long time, a common reaction to, or just money in general when it comes to the church is rolling your eyes, closing up your heart, opening up your wallet, and I'll just take a little bit here. Here we go again. The church trying to ask me for funds. You know, they want my money. And it's even awkward. It's coming from a guy whose salary is supported by my stuff. Yes, that's me. <laughs> Being fully transparent. No, but if you're a newcomer here, this is your first time in Bible study class. If this is the first time here at Second Baptist. You're probably like, wow, first Sunday I show up. And what is it? It's the money talk. Great. Wonderful. First time I've come to church in five years after the long journey I've been through to get here. And this is the conversation. Great. Okay. 
fair enough, okay, at least on the surface. Let me just say this. Whether you're a newcomer or whether you're a longtime member, the point of Pledge Sunday, the point of today's message, the point of the worship service, what we're about to do in there is not ultimately to talk about money. It's ultimately to talk about Jesus. It's ultimately to talk about worship. It's ultimately about discipleship, stewardship, fellowship, legacy, maybe even eternal life, all of which money is unavoidably a part of. Money, we all know this, is absolutely foundational. It's inescapably fundamental to our lives, period. There's no question about that. And so therefore, we necessarily live in a world where we are constantly living in a relationship between the world and ourselves with money, costs, and expenses, in a relationship with God, if you're a believer in a relationship with a covenant church, in a relationship with many things in life, and money is a part of that. It's a part of our necessary, everyday, normative experience. So there just can't be a divorce between an actual relationship with God and, our, and the role that money has in our life. You just can't skip over that. By the way, this idea shouldn't be that counterintuitive or too bizarre because if you just think about it, we literally talk about money all the time, all the time. We talk about the market. We talk about the economy. We talk about interest rates. You probably complained on the way over here how much you just spent on a Starbucks drink. You know, we talk about, you know, this is what I got from where and here and how much I spent. I just got a new car. I just bought a new house. I took out a new loan. My business is doing really well in quarter one. Wasn't doing so well in quarter four. Can you believe a dozen eggs cost this much in the grocery store? Just bought six yesterday because I was like, I don't want to even pay for 12. That just doesn't feel right. Around the dinner table, we talk, around, uh, we talk about money. Around the conference table, we talk about money. Every day we think about money, our expenses, investments, stuff, right? It's that normative. It's that necessary. It's weird if you don't talk about it, Right? And then you just kind of bring up money in the church setting. And then all of a sudden, that's when people get weird. And that's when they're like, don't talk about it. You know, <laughs> that's, that's essentially what's going on here. It's almost as if the topic of money, giving and stewardship, is taboo only because it touches us at a very deep place where we do have control in life. At least we think we do. It's, where, it's there that challenges our sense of control. That's when we start to get uncomfortable. And Jesus, if you've read any part of the Bible, Jesus talks about money a lot. He doesn't mind making people feel uncomfortable. He doesn't make, mind making people feel uncomfortable in, about money in particular. Jesus talked about money. Actually, if you, if you want to look at this, as we're going through the Gospels, John, as we've been doing, of Jesus' 39 parables, 11 are about our possessions. 11 out of 39 of his parables are all about our possessions and our heart towards them. Jesus talks as frequently numerically, statistically speaking, about money and possessions as he does heaven and hell. That's a big, 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 you know, quantity of each. The Bible mentions money just as a whole over 800 times, 800. And there are 2,000, more than 2,000 references all through the pages of scripture about the problems and struggles and temptations and issues that, money's, that money and possessions pose to our own life. Jesus knew that one of the best barometers of our spiritual life and maybe one of the best forecasters of our eternal life 
is our own relationship with money. And so today, we're going to take a large swath, a high overarching view of what the Bible says about God, our place, money, the world around us, because nothing is more foundational to life than money, and therefore nothing could be more formative or fruitful to us spiritually than how we navigate that tension between our relationship with God and our relationship with this world. By the way, if you're new to Bible study, uh, we usually have a passage of Scripture that we work through verse by verse, line by line. That's what we call expositional or exegetical approach to Scripture. Okay, Today, we're not quite doing that. It's more topical to focus on stewardship. We're going to be looking at a number of Scriptures, but we're not going to just not be expositional or exegetical. Okay? So we're kind of doing both. I like to call it toppositional, topical and also expositional. But typically, we're going to do expositional if you come back next week. But if you are type A, which I am, I like to prefer an outline up front. If you're taking notes, the, the three things that I believe scripture shows us at large are three main things about money. One, it's a right response. Two, it shows our true trust. And three, it's a form of high honor. Right response, true trust, and high honor. So I hope you found Genesis 4 and chapter 14 by now. You should be. It's at the very beginning of your Bible. This is going to be our first passage. No better place to start a discussion on stewardship and money than in the very beginning. All good theology, by the way, starts in Genesis. Okay, Genesis 4, verse 1. Here's how it reads. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was a shepherd. And Cain was a worker of the ground. He was a farmer. In verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had a regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain, he was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Okay, well, what do we see here? Just first, this is the first explicit mention in Scripture of stewardship, the principle of giving back to God out of the abundance of what he has given us back to him as an offering. Stewardship for the first time. And there's a contrast that's being displayed here and it's to highlight a point to show us what real stewardship looks like. First, you have Cain. Okay, shepherd, uh, sorry, farmer, he gives a, you know, an offering out of the fruit of the land, just an offering. Abel, on the other hand, he's the shepherd, and he gives his firstborn and the fat portions, he gives the best, that's first four. So, so notice first, just right up, right up front, the question is not whether we give to God. The, the question really is how and what we give and even when we give. See, Abel, as a shepherd, he gives the firstborn, he gives the best before the rest of his revenue comes in. He gives sacrificially, he gives lavishly, he gives trustingly. Cain, as a farmer, on the other hand, he gives something. There's no indicator that it's his best or it's his first fruits. There's no indicator that he's kind of giving out of his, out of his lavishness. It's just sufficient, maybe begrudgingly, certainly not trustingly. So one gift, though, this is interesting. God approaches both of their gifts in different ways. One gift was accepted. The other was not. One gift had sin still crouching at the door, desiring to rule over you. It's a very interesting picture, very profound picture, that in one gift, the gift of first fruits, the firstborn, the gift of sacrifice, the gift of 
of giving God your best and first giving in a trusting sense, that gift, there's an experience of freedom. Whereas the other gift that's held back, you kind of do it because you're supposed to, that one, that gift has, it's teeter-tottering with enslavement right there, right on your heels. Sin is crouching at your door. It's waiting to take over you. It's waiting to rule over you. So number one in your notes is this, is right response. We give to God because it's a right response to his stature, a right response to his stature. Giving from the very beginning is first and foremost, it's a command. It's it's our duty. It's a right response to God's stature and his greatness. Flip over to Genesis 14. We're going to see another story here that kind of further fleshes out this theme. Genesis 14, verse 18. I'm going to read uh, from the ESV. Here it is. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, who owns everything. God does. Okay. Verse 20. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, well, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, no, 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 I've lifted my hand to the Lord, the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, the one who owns everything anyway, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, king of Solomon, lest you should say, oh, it was me that made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have already eaten, their share of what the men who are with me already. And he knows his three friends, let them take their share. So, all right, what's going on here? Well, who is Melchizedek? What's happening? All right, we don't have time to go into the details of all the story here, but big picture here, this is a significant passage in scripture because this is the first time a tenth, giving God a tenth or a tithe is put in scripture. The very first time. And not only that, there's rich context around when the tithe was given as well. So Melchizedek, uh, again, Interesting figure for a lot of reasons, but essentially in this situation, he represents God to God's people. Melchizedek represents God to God's people. He's a, he's a priest of, God's, of God most high. Abraham, okay, who, by the way, is the father of Israel. He's, he had a lot of sons, Father Abraham. He's the father of the people of God through whom Jesus would eventually come into the world. Okay, Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tithe of everything that he had as an act of worship to God because Melchizedek represented God. So you have Abraham as God's people and Melchizedek representing the office of God, him giving him a tithe as an act of worship. And in their interaction, Melchizedek says this. He says to Abraham, Abraham, God owns everything. He's your provider. He will bless you. He is for you. He's promised to be with you every single step of the way. And in response, Abraham gives a tithe of all that he has to Melchizedek as an act of worship unto God. And that would become, that moment, that would become the tradition and the expectation from then on out where God's people would rightly respond to God, who is the possessor of all things, to give a tenth of what they do possess back to him as a form of worship. We see this again actually in Genesis 28 where Jacob who's Abraham's grandson. If you know anything about the Bible, Jacob is a squirrely dude. He lived a life of rejection and rebellion, but then he finally has an encounter with the Lord. He repents of his sin and he worships. And the first thing he does when he worships as an expression of his worship is he gives a tithe. 
That's Genesis 28, 22. Go, this, is, this is also really good. Go back to the story of Abraham and Melchizedek. I, I read the whole passage, not just the part of the tithe, because I, I wanted to point out something. What happens when Abraham is surrendered and open-handed with his treasure back to God? What happens when he trusts God? It, it, it then makes him a very generous, selfless person in how he deals with other people. He's like, because God will take care of me, I don't need to penny pinch with everybody else. In an, in an area where Abraham was probably justified in taking more expenses, some threads here, some sandal straps here, you know, instead he gives, he's like the king of Sodom. I don't want to, I don't want to like, I don't want money, the issue of money to be a wedge in our relationship, not a thread, not a sandal strap more. I don't want it to be a big deal. You take what's yours. I'll take what's mine. N- no more. It's not a big deal. I'll go my way. You go your way. I don't want money to be an issue. I don't want it to cause any conflict or harm in the future. Abraham didn't have to do that. But it was a selfless act of, okay, if God's going to take care of me, I don't need to penny pinch with everybody else. Have you ever met someone, by the way? And maybe this is you. This is going to be awkward. He was just ruthless with dumb expenses. So dumb, right? You know, this person is making $100,000 a year and they're nagging you about a $2 tip that you, you paid and, you know, that, you, that, that they paid for you for. And you're like, I'm not... I'm not trying to steal $2 of money from you, all right? But like, why, why are you like nagging me about it? Sorry, I just forgot. You know, here's, here's your $2, you know, it's not a big deal. There's many people that do that. Also, I know that this is a class of singles, but money is the number one cause of divorce in America. The number one cause of divorce, where people get so tied up and angsty about money. See, when we respond rightly to God with our money, with our possessions, when we respond rightly to him first, we become people who are generous and charitable and gracious with how we respond to others with those very things. It, generally speaking, okay, show me someone who does not give to God what is rightfully his. And that is typically a person who is also bitter, angry, and petty with other people. It, show me someone else who generally get, generously gives to God what he is owed. And I'll also show you someone who is generally generous, gracious, and patient with other people. How we relate to God vertically always overflows into how we relate to other people horizontally. And no, nothing better shows in issues of money and forgiveness. It's all downstream from how we first relate to God with how we relate to other people. Our posture about how we relate to God always is our posture of heart towards other people, and money is often a neon light and sign of, what, of that reality. See, from the beginning, Cain and Abel, right, also with Abraham, we see that they're rightly responding to God. It means giving their first, giving their best. God instituted the way with which we do that, which is via a tithe. In light of, God, in light of who God is, in light of all that he's given us, we worship by giving back. In light of God's stature, not just what he gives to us, but in light of who he is, in our lives, we give back. That's responding rightly. Number two is this, though it kind of funnels into it. Number two is we give, not just because it's the right response to God's stature, we also give because it's an expression of true trust in God's character. It's not just a response to his stature, but it's also trust, actual trust in his character. Right response says this to God with money. Right response says, God, you're the possessor of everything. You're worthy of it all. Worship based on stature. It's a command, it's a duty, and it applies. True trust says this. True trust says, God, I give and I trust you with all that I have. 
You own it all. It's all yours anyway. But I'm actually trusting you with this. I trust your heart towards me. Take care of me. Not just the fact that you own it all. I trust you with it. There are many places in scripture that, that get at this idea. But I want to direct your attention to 1 Timothy 6. If you could flip in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to read in verse 6. And as you're flipping there, I'm just going to go ahead and read. 1 Timothy 6 uh, it has a great passage on stewardship and, and generosity and money. This is how it starts. And if, you're, if you grew up in the church, you're probably familiar with the first line of this paragraph. It says, 1 Timothy 6, 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, you have the famous verse. For the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. If you go down to verse 17 in 1 Timothy 6, it says this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Truly life. Okay, there are, the reason I chose this passage is there are a lot of principles woven through it, positive and negative, about how we're to relate to our finances, how we're to follow Christ, what it means for him to be the possessor of us and all of our stuff and for us to use our possessions well. Okay, first, just speaking negatively here, all right, what are the, what are the, what are the commands and principles negatively speaking about money and how we're supposed to operate in that, in that dynamic tension with, with God? All right, what do we see? First, life is not about money. It's not about money. As soon as we make life about money, life gets really thin, really shallow, paper thin. It rips. It tears easily. We get hurt. We hurt other people. When we love money as if it is the purpose of life and that's where life is found, it leads us away from God. Ultimately, we will either love and trust money or we will love and trust God, but only one can be the ultimate in our life. Jesus would even say this in Matthew 6. He says, you cannot have two masters. You will either serve God or you will serve money, but you can't serve both. Now, does that mean you just give all your money away to everything? And you never actually have a set? No, of course not. What is the ultimate place of your trust in life? Now, this is severe, right? Very, very severe. Why, why, is, why is Paul being so severe in this passage? It's because money has such a severe power in our lives more than perhaps anything else. Why? You ever thought about that? Like, why is money so tempting? It's just a number, just paper. See, money, money more than anything else on earth, it promises to take the place of God in your life. See, money says, you know, you feel insecure. I'll make you feel secure. You want satisfaction? I can pay for that. I will be your, your greatest defense in your darkest days. Money will be. You feel sick, I'll heal you. You don't feel beautiful, I'll fix you. You want to make sure that you feel significant and you have stature, I can fix that. The more money that you make, the more that you'll, you'll be taken care of in life. 
I can give you true hope. That's what, that's, that is money's posture. To, that's, the, that's the allure of it. And so the Apostle Paul, he's challenging our love for money because it, it brings so much evil when we love it. But at the same time, well, I don't know if y'all like tracked with me in 1 Timothy 6, there's like tons of positive things that he also says about money. Do you hear that? All the positive principles. He says in the same passage, he says, hope in God, not money. God is the real provider. He says, God gives us money, listen, so that we can enjoy it. Like it's for our personal enjoyment. Verse 17, he gives us money so that we can be generous and to share with other people. Verse 18, God calls us to think about money because it should remind us of eternity. We think about good works and giving because it's a delayed investment into a kingdom that will never perish and whose stock will never plummet. This is a really good stock to invest in, the kingdom of God. So together, as you read this passage of scripture, you're like, oh man, it's like really low lows, really high highs, negative things with money, really good positive things with money. It's for my enjoyment personally. It's how I enrich other people. It's eternally significant. But there's also so much evil and destruction and shallowness with it. What do I do? That's why we give. That's That's precisely why we're called to give. See, giving a portion, giving a tithe, a full tithe to the Lord. And what we're doing is we're saying many things with one act of giving. We're saying, God, you're worthy. The money's not mine, it's yours. God, I trust you. You're the provider, not me. God, you've given me this money as a tool to be faithful, to bless others, to enrich other people's lives. God, this is the money that you've told me to invest back into your kingdom. And listen to this, by giving, when we give, this is what happens. It's a checks and balances on our overability to spend and our overability to save. Some of you in this room, actually probably about half of you in this room, you spend way too much money and you know that. The other half of you in this room, you save way too much. Usually you'll end up being married to each other. <laughs> but you either spend too much or you save too much. Giving is a checks and balances on both because it helps you not be an out of control spender And it also helps you not be a control freak saver. Money doesn't own you. You begin to own money. And you do that by giving it away. Giving is a form of worship and trust and love for God. Giving calibrates, it recalibrates a right relationship that we occupy in the world and before God. In the world, money is just a natural part of life. I have expenses, costs, things that I even want to buy. Nothing wrong with that. And yet I still am, am, am under the judgment seat of the one who owns it all anyway, and I'm just a steward of all the stuff that he gives. See, I understand for a lot of people, especially if you've, if you've never given before, you've never tithed, that can be really scary. Because you're like, you're, you've lived at a certain threshold for so long, you can expect certain costs, incomes accordingly, I get that. But if you're a believer, you know this, I don't even have to convince you, but you know you have a deep responsibility with the Lord, with your money, it's a deeply spiritual matter, it's not just financial. Because it's about real trust. It's about real obedience. It's not just about the songs that you sing in worship. It's not about just going to a Bible study. This is where your relationship with God really takes a turn because it actually matters. You see that, that number. There's a real cost in life. See, David Jeremiah, he's a famous pastor out in California. He tells a story about a couple that uh, he was counseling one time. It was in the exact same situation that many of us are in as well. They knew they were supposed to tithe. They'd been in church their whole life, been followers of Jesus for a really long time. Couldn't, they just couldn't bring themselves to do it. 
And so they're in this tension. They're like, ah, Pastor Jeremiah, here's the situation. Here's our cost. This is the debt that we have. This is our mortgage. We're paying off a car. You know, what do I do? You know, we still know that we're supposed to tithe. Do we wait until all of our debt is over? I mean, by the way, it, when are we not in debt? Especially if you have a house, you're going to be in debt the rest of your life. It's, being in debt is never a reason to not give. Debt is just a normal part of life. You always have income. You always have expenses. But they're like, here's all, they're showing him all the receipts and everything. But they're saying, Pastor, we can't give. Give us an exception. Give us an exemption. And so David Jeremiah, being the clever, wise, gentle pastor that he is, he goes, okay, thanks for showing. I, I, I hear you. I see everything. Thanks for bringing it up. I, I love your heart that you want to. How about this? I'll give you a proposition. How about this? Write a check for me of 10% of what your incomes are every two weeks, just 10%, write on a check. I will keep it in my desk. And if you literally cannot take care of yourself, pay the expenses, whatever, if you can't live off that 90%, how about this? I'll give it back to you and you can cash it. What do you think about that? And so they kind of, they sat in that a little bit. They're like, I don't know. And then eventually they just, they broke. They're like, we, we got to just try. They obliged. I said, all right, yes, pastor, we, we get, we'll do it. So David Jeremiah, he, he wants to make it a little bit harder on them. He's like, are you sure? You really want me to do this? And you will let me know if you really can't. Like, you're going to be honest with me in this whole process. Do you really trust me to take care of it? Whatever. He's like, yeah, 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 we, we do. So he goes, okay. So they wrote him a check. He put it in his desk. Both parties, you know, the couple, they kind of leaned back in their cozy chairs in his office. He kind of leaned back in his desk. He goes, so how do you feel? And they go, Pastor. We feel great. We actually, we actually feel great. Thank you. And right then, David Jeremiah, he leaned in. He pulled the trap door on them. He said, then shame on you. Because you trust me more than you trust God. Why would you do that? The moral of the story is this. Is it make them feel shame and guilt for not giving. It's more than that. He's getting at a, a core principle. He's saying everyone trusts something and someone to take care of them in life. What is that for you? Who is that for you? Everyone trusts. It's just a matter of what. When we give the muscle of our faith and our trust, that is faith in real life. When we give, that's when our faith really meets the rubber, meets the road in real ways. God does not need our money. He doesn't need your money. He wants your trust more. He wants your worship and he wants you to be free where money doesn't own you, where you're always enslaved to thinking about every single cost and every single debt. Now, be a steward, be shrewd, and, and be wise, and save, and give, and all those things. But at the end of the day, what do you ultimately trust in? What are you ultimately looking for for your sense of security and significance and satisfaction ultimately? Jesus is saying money will kill you. But when you start to give, you finally find freedom. I heard a pastor say this one time. He said, God calls us to give, not because he wants the money out of our wallets. He wants the idols out of our hearts. And giving is the way that we do that. It's a way that we demonstrate trust in him more. Giving shows, perhaps more than anything else, that we actually trust God, that we really worship him, that we really are depending on him through life. We might say that we trust God with the songs that we sing or attendance in Bible study or whatever, one thing really shows what we really trust in, though, and that's our credit line and our bank statements. That shows more than anything else. Lastly, giving is not just a right response to God with a stature. It's not just a, a true trust in his character. It's also, number three, it's a high honor. 
It's a high honor. Number, you know, we said this earlier. It's a right response to his stature. It's a, it's a true trust to his character. A high honor. This, this point gets on God's kingdom culture, the kingdom culture that we occupy as believers. It, maybe to kind of explain it a little bit more. When we give because of God's stature, it's a, it's a relational duty. It's a command. When we give for God's, uh, in light of God's character to trust him, that's a relational delight that we share in God. God's kingdom culture, though, this gets on a relational dynamic that we have with God as we give him what he's given back to us. Here's what I mean. Okay, every relationship has a dynamic, right? All right, husband, wife, parent, child, employer, employee, business to customer, business to business, B2C, B2B. It is no different in our relationship with God. God is a person, by the way. He's not like some spiritual force. Or a slot machine. Like he's a person with a personality, with emotions and desires and a will. He's a relational God. And each and every one of us, we occupy a certain space in a relational dynamic with God. And, and just like money is a factor in every other relationship that we have in life, it plays a role in the relationship dynamic that we have with God as well. So when it comes to money, all right, God owns everything. We're just stewards of his stuff. So how we save, spend, give, that produces a certain relationship dynamic that we share with him. In a sense, we can either honor him or we can dishonor him. Okay, and track with me here. Just like in any relationship dynamic, honor flows both ways. In any relationship dynamic, honor flows both ways. Husband, wife, parent, child, employer to employee, business to customer, customer to business, business to business. Let me read a couple passages to kind of hint at this idea. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. If you're a Christian, you love this verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Honor him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, we, not many of us are familiar with just a couple verses down from verse 6. Verse 9, honor the Lord. Honor again with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. All right, what is our job as Christians? Honor and obedience. When I don't understand, when I don't know what the future looks like, I don't know how to store up my resources for the, whatever's next. What is God's job as our God? Outcome. Outcome. I will make your path straight. I will take care of you. I will provide all that you need. Our job is honor. His job is outcome. That is a relationship dynamic of God's kingdom culture. That's how it works. Another passage get in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 9. Whoever sows sparingly, they don't want to sow. Well, you'll also reap sparingly. You won't get much out. Though who, the one who sows bountifully, he will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. The Apostle Paul here, he's hinting at this idea, once again, of a relationship dynamic in the kingdom of God and how we relate with money and how he relates back to us. Namely, when we give, God loves to give back. God loves to give back. Oftentimes, to the degree that we give, he gives more. He gives back to that degree. We honor God with our finances. He honors us back with them or in another, in another great way. Now, this sounds, by the way, this sounds so fishy, Right? And the last thing I want to do is sound like some Ponzi scheme preacher, right? Who's on TV and espousing some nasty prosperity gospel. 
See, the prosperity gospel says this. It says health, wealth, and happiness in the things of the world, that's a sign of your relationship with God. That's demonic. It's not true. The biblical principle, of, uh, principle about money, though, is this. It says when we honor God, he honors us back. He loves to honor. He'll take care of us and he'll bless us for it. Now, I'm not saying if you give $100, then you'll reap 200 more back. Not like that. God is not some accelerated spiritual index fund. He's not, okay? But scripture is full, full of many examples of God blessing those who trust him and depend on him. I can't even tell you the number of times in my own life where God has abundantly provided for me in wild ways. And I, and I have never, never, at the end of every year, been more generous than God has been generous to me. Never. God loves to surprise where it's just like, oh, it might be a financial gift that came out of nowhere, or it's free World Series tickets that I didn't anticipate getting, or other times it's investments that do really well that shouldn't have gone that well, or costs that I thought I had that were taken care of in a different way. God loves to be involved in our lives in the little things, especially money, which is a big thing in our life. He loves to be involved in that way. Malachi 3.10 says this. It says, God is talking to the people of Israel here. He's saying, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. God's like, challenge me. Come on, let's try, try, give, give. See if I won't give more, do it. I bet you won't, I dare you, watch me. Well, he's like, he's, like he's, he's eager to show you how generous he is back. That's that relationship dynamic, that dynamic of honor. God doesn't want us to just begrudgingly give in obedience, just check the box because that's where I'm supposed to be, and I'm an obedient Christian, whatever. He wants you to be a cheerful in, in, investor and partner in his kingdom. Oh, and by the way, he'll take care of you. He will really take care of you if you trust him. Maybe you've heard of this giving principle before. You know, if you're not giving until it hurts, you're not giving enough. <laughs> okay, maybe you've heard of that. That has some truth to it because we need to give in a way that's sacrificial. But that is not the metric that God is after in totality. The metric God is after in totality is, is not give until it makes you hurt. It's give until it makes you happy. It's, it's give until you feel like I'm free and I trust God and I know that he's for me. That's the posture of heart that is in God's kingdom culture. That's what he's looking for. See, many people, you know, they look at the children's building, for example, that we're, <laughs> we're building right across the, the archway here. And you know, many people are like, ah, oh, another thing to build, more costs, more expenses, really? Okay, on the other hand, though, another posture of heart says this. It says, man, I, I get to invest in the next generation. I get to be a part of something that will serve tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of kids for the next hundred years. Maybe my own grandkids will be in that building. You know what? I was part of that. I helped that. I invested in that. When that kid came to Christ, I was a part of that in some way. That's, that is seeing finances and stewardship in a radically different way than just the bottom line. See, here at Second Baptist Church, just speaking as a pastor here, do we want you to give towards the, the ministries and operations and missions here? Of course. We think that we can do a lot of good with that. We believe that one day we're going to stand before the Lord and give a full account. Now, is that the main reason why we want you to give? No, no. The main reason we want our people to give is this. We want our people to follow Jesus. This is not an issue of finances. This is discipleship. 
This is worship. This is stewardship. It's trust. We want to foster a culture where people are really generous because they really know God. And that's who God is. That's ultimately who God is. I'll close with this. The most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. The expression of God's greatest love, the essence of who he is, is that he gave. He gave his first, he gave his best, he gave his only, not begrudgingly, he didn't have to do it. And then Jesus Christ, he comes to the world, he lives a perfect life, and he goes to a a cross and he gives his life to save us. He, He went at it for the joy set before him so that he could bring people into the kingdom to know God. So, you know, as we think about our finances, we think about our possessions, money, treasure, See, giving is, not, giving is not what varsity Christians do because they can. Giving and generosity and stewardship is baseline Christianity because it's about worship and discipleship. It's about syncing up our hearts with the heartbeat of God because God is happiest when he gives and so are we. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for all the things that you've given us. God, we're so gracious. We're so, we're so grateful. We, we can't even recall all, of, all the ways that you've been gracious to us. And God, I, I pray that you would make us people who are more generous at heart with one another, with you. Help us to see the things that you've given us. Help us to see ourselves as stewards and money as a way to enjoy, money as tools, money as a way to share, money as a way to invest, but that it shouldn't be our God. We pray that you would save us and rescue us from the ways that money tries to take the place in our life that only you should occupy. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.